Thanks for listening to Matt McLaughlin History. Become a subscriber to receive exclusive bonus episodes, ad-free listening, early access to all episodes, and special member-only events. Click on the link in the show notes or visit patreon.com forward slash mmhistory. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Living History. And let me begin this week with a big thank you, a thank you to everyone out there because in August we had a record number of downloads. More people listened to the podcast than any time before and it's just really wonderful. I'm so grateful to you all out there. There's nothing more rewarding to me than than bringing you these chapters of history and having you respond. People listening to the podcast, downloading, sending me emails, sending me messages on Twitter and Facebook. It's just really wonderful. I'm loving bringing this history to you and thank you so much for responding. If you are enjoying the podcast, please subscribe so you won't miss an episode. And also, tell your friends, give us a review. Click on that star rating on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or however you get the podcast. Give us a review, give us a star rating, write a few comments, and that will ensure that more and more people find out about the podcast and we can bring you more great content. Speaking of great content, it's grand final season in the footy. It's it's grand final week. And so to celebrate that and the history of AFL in particular... I did something really exciting. I went to the MCG and did a tour of the hallowed ground that is the MCG. I stood out on the turf. I went into all the rooms. I went into the change rooms, the practice facilities, and all the wonderful historic rooms that tell the story of cricket and AFL at the MCG. It was a really great experience. And don't forget, you can do it as well. There are tours that depart every day, behind-the-scenes tours of the MCG whenever there's not a sporting event on. So get down there and check it out. I was showed around by a bloke called James, a really lovely bloke, one of the volunteers down there. He showed me throughout the MCG. It was really great. I really hope you enjoy this. So to celebrate Grand Final Week, let's enjoy a tour of the MCG. This is the Living History Podcast, broadcasting live across the airwaves. James, we're standing here on the the hallowed turf of the MCG. I mean, obviously, this is a building that's been around for a long time, and it's changed significantly in that time. How how long has the MCG stood here? Uh, Well, we have to go back pre-MCG, or pre-this MCG. This is actually the second one. Um, If we go right back, European settlement of Melbourne, 1835. After three years of uh, building the town, the gentleman of the day decided that was enough hard work, time for a game of cricket. So Melbourne Cricket Club was formed in 1838. And the first matches just played on available parkland around the town. It wasn't until 1846 that we had the first permanent ground, the first Melbourne Cricket Ground. And that wasn't here. Um, you're probably familiar with Crown Casino. Very, very close to there was the site of the first Melbourne Cricket Ground. A lot of problems with that site. We had um, the Yarra River that used to flood in those days. The... Um, Government decided to put the railway line through to Port Melbourne right past the ground. And in the early 1850s, we had uh, uh, the gold rush. So you got 
uh, heaps of people pouring into Melbourne to head to the gold fields. And while they decided uh, which gold field they were going to and arranged their transport and mining equipment, they set up camp uh, right next to the Melbourne cricket ground. It was called Canvas Town. And uh, you can probably imagine the problems with a site like that, the hygiene, the dodgy characters. So the members put up with that for a couple of years. By 1853, they'd had enough of all those problems. And they asked the governor of the day, Governor Latrobe, for land here. And this was known as the Richmond Police Paddocks. It was where the police stabled and trained their horses. A vast area of land, a lot bigger than it is today, went from Punt Road in the east all the way into the city and from Wellington Parade in the north all the way down to the Yarra. And the club picked this site out here, far enough back from the Yarra that it wasn't going to flood, well drained. You may have noticed the slope of the land. I think you walked down the hill. Uh, the slope from the north to the Yarra in the south. And most important, and still just as important today, walking distance from the city so people could get here. So a year later, we had our first pavilion ready to go, and that held 60 people. Today, as you look at the stadium, we hold 124. Now, the and 24 is very significant because lots of stadiums around the world hold 100,000, but we, we hold 100,024. So we jump up the list. We're about 10th in terms of capacity of stadiums around the world. James, at what stage did AFL start being played here? Because this is known as the home of AFL. This is the iconic place where so many famous matches have been played. When did it make that transition from, from just cricket ground to also uh, VFL and then AFL ground? Yep, okay. Can I just correct you slightly? Can we call it Australian Rules Football? Okay. AFL is one of many bodies that play Australian Rules Football, but initially we're talking about Australian Rules Football. There is no VFL, there is no AFL. Um, 1858, probably the best cricketer in the country, a chap by the name of Tom Wills, and he'd been sent to rugby school in England by his father to gain a, a proper education. Poor old Tom wasn't much of a student, but he was a great sportsman. He became a great cricketer and, to a lesser extent, a football player. When he came back to Australia, he played for Victoria and he was probably the best cricketer in the country. And he wrote to the sporting paper of the day, Bell's Life in Victoria. But It's hard to believe they had a sporting paper back then, but they did. And he suggested, why can't the cricketers form football teams to keep fit during winter? And football was being played, but not as we know any of the codes today. There were no clubs, no rules to speak of. No structure, it was just meat in the park and it was pretty much a free-for-all. And the players were getting injured left, right and centre. So Wills wanted to put some structure to it all and some rules so that his cricketers could play football during the winter months, keep them fit, keep them out of the pub. Um, but he didn't want them getting injured because then they no use come cricket season. So he sat down with uh, four of his mates in 1858 and worked out first 10 rules of Australian rules football. And the Melbourne Football Club was formed in response, the first club. And from there it grew. Uh, some clubs came and went, others stayed. Uh, we had first the VFA, then the VFL in 1896, and uh, then the AFL, which took over from the VFL in 2000, no, 1990. Um, so that's been the transition and the competition's grown from that one club uh, up to 18 in the top level AFL competition. And they've always played Australian rules here on the ground at the MCG? Well, not initially. Initially, the cricketers said, you heathen footballers, you can't play on the hallowed turf, you'll rip it up, it'll be no good uh, for cricket. Uh, so they made them play out in the park. Uh, and to deal with that situation, the club was very inventive and they built a special grandstand, which was reversible. 
So when you're watching uh, cricket in the summer on the hallowed turf here, the seats would all be on an incline as you see the seats today. But when it came time for football out in the park, all those seats, they got out the ropes and pulleys and all those seats were able to go in the opposite direction. And they could then sit in the same stand looking in a 180 degree opposite direction and watching football out in the park. Uh, eventually, of course, they let them play football on the hallowed turf and found that rather than doing any damage, probably did the ground some good. And, of course, we've been playing football there ever since. It's a spectacular stadium, and especially down here at ground level, as I look around, it must be one of the most modern stadiums in the world. Obviously, it's changed a lot since the early days. Are there any original parts still remaining of the MCG? There's nothing. Uh, well, there's a clock which was on our first little pavilion. We'll show you that later. Um, but it wasn't there when the pavilion was first built. It was an addition about 10 years later. Uh, over on the southern side of the ground, we have a small piece of fence that dates to 1885. The next oldest thing here is 100 years later, is the light towers, which are 1985. So we're not one for really hanging on to our heritage. It's all been replaced. Stand now, this one we're standing next to, right above us you can see 2006. That's the latest uh, stand, this whole stand on this northern side. Finished in 2006, just in time for the Commonwealth Games. And you can see it says Olympic stand. Of course, the Olympics are in 1956. Uh, but on this site is where the stand that was built for the Olympics stood. So we've kept the name. Well, it's a wonderful stadium. Let's go and explore a little bit further. James, we're now in the members section of the MCG, a fairly salubrious part of the ground. But this is fascinating. We're standing in front of two flags, a Marine, United States Marine flag and a Royal Australian Air Force flag. What's the connection with the MCG has with wartime? During the Second World War, the federal government took over the uh, MCG. We had no sport here for about four years other than the Americans playing baseball and American football. First, we had uh, the United States Army Air Forces. Uh, they were here after uh, battles in the Pacific to recover. You're saying that they were billeted here actually at the ground? They were billeted here at the ground. Um, they, uh, they didn't camp on the playing surface. They had a series of tents around the terraces and uh, they called it Camp Murphy after a Colonel Murphy who died at uh, Peleliu, I think it was, in the Pacific. Uh, then we had the Marines. Uh, the Marines were here for R&R. For &R. Uh, they called it Heaven. Uh, they loved the place. And then we had the Royal Australian Air Force. The Royal Australian Air Force alone uh, put over 200,000 men through the MCG on their way to or from uh, a posting. Conditions for them uh, weren't that flash. They either boarded up the old uh, grandstands or dropped a tarp down there. Uh, and it was a straw mattress on the slat benches. Uh, was a bit uncomfortable. At one stage, just before the Marines moved in, they made an improvement to the accommodation. They installed an extra 33 cold showers. I'm just trying to imagine what it must have been like in those days when millions of servicemen descended on cities like Melbourne and, of course, iconic grounds like this one were used, were pressed into military service. It wasn't just the people being pressed into military service. It was the buildings as well. And I'm just trying to imagine hundreds of thousands of of young men crammed in here having just come off the battlefields of the Pacific. The conditions uh, would have been pretty ordinary. There was also, uh, not so much here, but around town, a conflict between the Americans and Australian servicemen. You know, the Americans were pinching all the uh, young ladies. Uh, and I know that here we held a, uh, a bit of a get-together to, um, you know, foster some ties between the American and Australian troops and some goodwill. So we've got a number of plaques here, James, commemorating uh, the, the forces that were here. We've got uh, United States Army Air Forces. We've got the Royal Australian Air Force, the Marine Corps, and then a commemorative plaque as well. It's, it's extraordinary just the, 
the range of different units that pass through here. Absolutely. Um, a lot of different uh, units. There was also some training units as well that don't get a mention. They're only here for short periods of time. They were part of the Royal uh, Australian are they Air Force or Army? One of the two, but technical units that were here specifically for training. And I see that the plaque to the Marines was unveiled by uh, Mitchell Page, who won the Medal of Honour on Guadalcanal. And anyone who saw the series, I think it was in 2010, called The Pacific, uh, will remember the episode dedicated just to the Marines descending on Melbourne after their time in Guadalcanal. I can imagine it was a pretty, uh, a pretty exciting time for both the Marines and the local people of Melbourne. Oh, absolutely. Um, the cricket club uh, has always had a uh, involvement in the war, not only the Second World War when the ground was taken over, but during the First World War. Uh, Billy Hughes held rallies here uh, in, a, in, in support of conscription. Uh, they were pretty violent affairs. We also had, after or during the First World War, the first public memorial to those who had passed away in the war, given their lives and service. Uh, that was right outside the front of the members here at the MCG. It was a cenotaph. I uh, was here for a number of years um, before they built a more permanent memorial uh, on the steps of Parliament and then, of course, uh, the shrine down in St Kilda Road followed that. James, we're standing in front of two honour rolls, one for the First World War, one for the Second. Um, I assume in memory of well, MCC members who, uh, who were killed during the wars. Yes, that's right. These are, this is in memory of Melbourne Career Club members who gave uh, their lives, paid the ultimate sacrifice. The First World War doesn't have members on it uh, because it was very difficult getting a definitive list. But the Second World War uh, is a definitive list and there are some famous sportsmen amongst them. If we look on the middle column, the third one down, uh, Ross Gregory, uh, who played Test cricket, is one. Uh, Stuart King, uh, about halfway down that same, uh, he uh, played uh, a cricket uh, and Australian rules football, played Australian rules football for the St Kilda Football Club, a great sportsman. Uh, and there are a couple of others who also represent the Melbourne Cricket Club. So. I also see that Newton VC is uh, recorded here, Victoria Cross recipient. Absolutely, yes. Uh, he's probably our most uh, decorated uh soldier to pass away. They're really quite uh, spectacular. I go to the uh, Facebook page to see photos of these, but some really beautiful memorials and um, again, just showing that these wars touched really every part of society. I can see uh, there's there's the clock up on the wall there. I assume that's the clock you mentioned earlier that was uh, one of the original features? Indeed. That was on our very first pavilion, the one that held just 60 people. It was actually found in a storeroom uh, in the old Southern Stand when they pulled that down in about 1991 to build the present Great Southern Stand. It had been put there and forgotten about. It was on our second pavilion, um, but then it uh, disappeared into storage. So it's been uh, um, renovated, I guess is the word. The mechanicals are all gone. It's uh, now uh, electrically run, uh, but the face and the hands and that part of it are all original. Wonderful. Great little link with history. We're standing in front of the honour board for uh, batting and bowling averages for the, uh, for the MCC. Tell us a little bit about this, James. Uh, well, these go right back, as you can see, to 1845-46. Uh, uh, the first few years of the club, there are no records for it, possibly because we're you know, playing matches amongst ourselves, intra-club matches. Um, we had to wait for a few other clubs to be formed. Uh, so a lot of very famous names up there. Uh, if we come down to, I'm um, just looking, 1895-96, Hugh Trumbull, a uh, great test cricketer for Australia, one of only four test cricketers to take two test hat-tricks in his career. So a very exclusive club that Hugh Trumbull's a member of, and Hugh Trumbull took both his test hat-tricks here at the MCG. 
few a few years uh, down from there, 1903, 04, and 05, 06, 06, 07. Warwick Armstrong, Australian captain, uh, is featured there. Um, we go on uh, right down the bottom, 38, 39, and 40, 41. Percy Booms, uh, who not only was a great uh, cricketer, test cricketer, but played Australian rules football and became a, a noted journalist uh, with the age. Matt, we're standing in our 150th anniversary foyer and we have two distinct celebrations here. Uh, on this side, we have the bronze doors, which were external doors on our old stand, the one we pulled down to build this one. And if you look on the middle panel, they celebrate 150 years of the Melbourne Cricket Club, 1838 to 1988. And they depict some of the many people and events that have happened here. Um, of note is the one we're immediately in front of, and who else but Sir Donald Bradman. And that's a list of uh, Bradman's first-class scores at the MCG. And I'm sure you'll know uh, Bradman's test average of 99.94. But here at the MCG, Bradman's test average, 128.53. Bradman loved the MCG. Uh, on the other side is a tapestry. The tapestry celebrates 150 years of the Melbourne Cricket Club here at this location. So if you remember, we moved in 1853. So that's a timeline from 1853 at the left-hand side of that tapestry to 2003 at the right. And it depicts uh, test cricketers up the top, Australian rules footballers down the bottom. And there's a few other things scattered around, such as the military that we've just talked about. Uh, the three tenors are down the far end to um, represent some of the many concerts we've had here. So a lot of, and the Olympics in the middle, a lot of different elements all connected with the history of the MCG over that 100 years. James, we're standing in front of the, the tapestry you've just described. It's really quite magnificent. And I can see that each part of it has a little story about something of importance to the MCG. Are there, are there a couple of favourites that you can highlight? Absolutely. Um, on the left, one of the very early ones, 1868, is the uh, first Indigenous, uh, sorry, the first Australian cricket team to tour overseas, an Indigenous team from Western Victoria, coached uh, while they were in Australia by Tom Wills. He didn't go to England, but he coached them here in Australia. They went to England in 1868 and uh, performed quite well. A couple of years earlier, 1866, they actually played against the Melbourne Cricket Club here at the MCG on Boxing Day. Below them, we have a figure of some footballers playing under electric light here at the MCG in 1879. Now, our light towers didn't go up till 1985, but way back in 1879, they played two games of football under electric light here at the MCG. Electricity was very new, let alone electric light. They were very inventive, they painted the football white, but um, the lights just weren't strong enough, not to mention the problems of uh, trying to navigate around a light tower that was out in the middle of the playing surface. I'm just noticing, James, amongst the uh, many sporting figures depicted up here, there's also the military that we've, we've already discussed, uh, the, the concerts, as you mentioned, with the three tenors, but I, I noticed someone right in the middle uh, standing there in a grey suit. Who is that representing on the tapestry? Uh, that in the grey suit is Billy Graham, the American evangelist preacher who was here in 1959. And ironically, uh, for a sporting venue, he holds our all-time attendance, re attendance record of over 130,000. And how he was able to do that, of course, he had people out on the playing surface as well as in all the stands. So that's probably a record that will stand for all time. Um, our all-time attendance record for a sporting event is 1970, very famous Australian Rules Grand Final between Carlton and Collingwood. Uh, one that Collingwood thought they had in the bag at halftime. Um, they claimed the champagne was being opened in the rooms. And then uh, legendary coach Ron Barassi said to handball at all costs, 
and the blonde bombshell Ted Hopkins came off the interchange bench at half-time, kicked four second-half goals and inspired Carlton to a famous victory. And at that game, we got 121,696. James, we're in this uh, quite magnificent hallway and there's uh, there's four portraits hanging on the wall, not necessarily the sort of thing you'd expect to find in a sporting stadium. Who are these uh, distinguished gentlemen on the wall? These are the uh, four of the five founders of the Melbourne Cricket Club uh, way back in 1838. Uh, we've got Alfred Mundy. He went on uh, to be a Colonial Secretary of South Australia uh, before he went back home to inherit inherit a Shipley coal mine, uh, the family fortunes. Uh, Frederick Powlett, uh, probably the main one of the uh, five men who did found the Melbourne Cricket Club. Uh, a street name just around the corner after him. There's a river down in Gippsland. He was a uh, Crown Surveyor. Robert Russell. Uh, the next one, he's uh, after Powlett, probably the most important person. And then the last one here is Charles uh, Fitzroy Millamundi, who was Alfred Millamundi's brother. Uh, he was only here for a very short time in Melbourne, and the Mundys actually help us date exactly uh, by the time that they were in Melbourne. We, can, we know uh, that that's when the Melbourne Career Club was founded, so it's a nice check on everything that's come down to us over the years. The one that we're missing is uh, Captain Brunswick Smythe and there was a portrait of him and it was in uh, Melbourne as late as uh, 1899 which in the whole scheme of things is quite late but it was sent back to England when his widow died. So whether it still exists in England, uh, I don't know. We'd love to find it. If anybody listens to this, knows of Smythe's portrait, please let the Melbourne Cricket Club know. Just another one of those countless treasures hanging on walls in uh, in stately English homes. Yes, unfortunately, there'd be hundreds, maybe even thousands of red-coated soldiers. So it'd be unless it's got his name on it, it'd be difficult to spot. Tell me about this, James. Uh, this um, print is from a watercolour, uh, which records our first international match. It was way back in 1862. And uh, the English eleven captain by Heathfield Stevenson came out uh, to play against uh, the Melbourne Cricket Club. Actually, it was against Melbourne and District. And it wasn't the Melbourne Cricket Club that invited the English eleven out. It was a firm of caterers. Uh, I think they thought they'd sell more beer and pies if they got the English out. And the English eleven played against eighteen of Melbourne and District. That was a common handicap system in those days. The better team would play more of the opposition. Uh, the English still won. But as you can see in the print, it was uh, remarkably successful. They re- repeatedly have in excess of 25,000 people here at a time when Melbourne's population, not much more than 100,000. And you can see some of the elements in this print. Our little pavilion uh, at the back here, which held 60 people. The grandstand was just a temporary arrangement built just for that match. You can see the American flag on the right. I did, I did see that flying there and wondered what that was. Uh, well, this is 1862. As I said, a lot of Amer- Americans in here, they'd missed out on the Californian gold rush. They'd come to uh, Victoria to try their luck here. And a lot of them ended up in Melbourne as merchants and uh, traders. And that's uh, why the American flag is there. There's a big American population here at that stage. And, of course, the Civil War was going on at that time, so nationalism was very much to the front. Yes, Um we have a very interesting story involving Melbourne uh, with the Civil War, with the uh, Confederate ship, the Shenandoah, uh, which was here uh, and ended up costing the British government about £3 million uh, because we were supposed to be, as part of the British Empire, supposed to be neutral and uh, the ship was uh, re... Uh, what they call it? re and uh, there was a few who allegedly stayed away but 
probably recruited to join the crew. We actually covered that on a podcast a couple of months ago. So if you want more of that story, go back and listen to Dale Blair talking about the uh, the Shenandoah. Quite an interesting story, interesting chapter of Australian history. We've just come out onto one of the high levels of the ground and it's not till you get up here that you get a perspective on how massive this sporting field actually is. And I, I can't imagine what it must be like packed with people on grand final day. But James, you were saying that on the far side, there's a, there's a seat that's painted a different colour to the rest and it tells a special story. It does tell a special story, and there's a little plaque under the seat which uh, tells you all about it if you're sitting there. But that's one of the biggest sixes hit here at the MCG. Uh, That's where the ball landed. It was hit by um, former Test cricketer Simon O'Donnell playing for Victoria in a Sheffield Shield match um, against your state, actually, New South Wales. And the bowler was uh, another former Test player in Greg Matthews. Uh, O'Donnell batting at the northern end, so it's a massive straight drive down the ground. Uh, It really is a huge hit. In 2015, when we had the World Cup here, nobody got remotely close uh, to that seat and uh, there were a lot of sixes hit during that tournament. We're not sure if it's the biggest six ever at the MCG. It's certainly the biggest since these stands have gone up. But way back in the 1880s, there was another Australian test cricketer by the name of George Bonner. And he was a mountain of a man. Uh, around standing around six foot six uh, and weighing about 16 stone in the measure of his day. And in his day, if you hit the ball over the fence, you only got five runs. You had to hit it right out of the place to get six. And Bonner used to do that. But the stands were much lower and there were big gaps in between them. So we're not able to uh, compare O'Donnell's hits to, uh, uh, to George Bonner. James, we're getting to the parts of the ground now that I think people listening to this will be most jealous of, where you know, this is the behind the scenes where the players hang out. We're here in uh, what looks like the, the interview room, I assume. What, what room are we in here? Yes, this is the media interview room. Uh, it gets used for both football and cricket. During the football season, usually the winning coach is interviewed first, about 20 minutes after the match ends. Um, we give the losing coach a bit of time to calm down and chill out before he has to face all those awful questions from the media. And you'll note on the wall we have an MCG backdrop, but each team will bring along their own backdrop uh, with their own sponsors and colours and logos on it. And the same during the cricket season, although, of course, the captains that we interviewed during the cricket season instead of the coach. So change room two, all decorated for Melbourne with all their sponsors and colours and logos. Uh, The two change rooms at the MCG are identical. Uh, Gone are the bad old days where you'd find uh, cold showers in the visitors' change rooms. Um, but we have four teams that share the MCG as their home ground. So Melbourne and Richmond use this change room, change room two, and Collingwood and Hawthorne use change room number one. During the cricket season, Australia uses change room number one and their visitors use change room number two. So here where we are, if we look up on the wall, we have our honour boards for test cricket. So if you make a century against Australia in a test match, as uh, Pujara did for India in the Boxing Day test six months ago, your name goes up on the left-hand side of that board. And if you're a bowler and you take five wickets or more in an innings, uh, as uh, Desperate Boomerah also did for India six months ago, then your name goes up on the right-hand side of that board. So a lot of very famous uh, cricketers up there on the honour boards. I've got to say, looking around, it's, uh, it's pretty uh, utilitarian. It's not, uh, it's not fancy in any way. I mean, I know they, they do their warm-ups, etc. in here, but um, it's, it's like a change room that you'd see just about any sporting ground anywhere around the country? Uh, it's a little, they're a little bigger than, than that. Uh, there's a lot of different rooms here. Uh, we've got the coach's room. The head trainer gets a room. There's the very inner sanctum of the change rooms, the coach's briefing room. Uh, the property steward, he gets two rooms. 
Physiotherapy has a room. Medical people have a room. Drug testing has a room. There's even a room for the family. So it is quite a, a comprehensive uh, uh, change room. And out the back, of course, we've got the locker room uh, and our recovery pools. James, we're in football season at the moment and the, the room here is basically a big empty room, which I assume is where they do a lot of their warm-ups and exercises. Is What changes take place here between the transition from football to cricket season? Yeah, in the cricket season, I think the cricketers find the whole complex too big. So in this big uh, empty space, we bring in uh, lockers for the cricketers. We bring in a few massage tables, chairs and tables, uh, fridges for their food and drink. And the cricket team will just operate out of this big room apart from using the bathrooms out the back. Because it is quite extensive. Where we're standing, there's you know half a dozen different rooms that are leading off here, corridors. And you know it is, as you said, it's quite a complex here for the whole team and the team structure, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's probably the difference between the numbers in a cricket team, you know, 11 and the 12th man, uh, 18 plus uh, four on the interchange bench in the football team, plus the football teams uh, will have, you know, up anywhere up to half a dozen assistant coaches, half a dozen trainers. The committee likes to be involved. There's people everywhere uh, during the football season. This is something I've really wanted to see, James. This is the honour board for the, uh, for the Aussies. Some pretty famous names up there. Some very famous names. On the left, we've uh, got these test centuries uh, on a board. So if you make a century at the MCG for Australia, your name goes up there. Then the bowlers you take five wickets or more in an innings. Uh, and you can see Pat Cummins did that in the Boxing Day test against India just six months ago. The bottom of the bowling one, we have a list of t- hat-tricks. And uh, you can see uh, Hugh Trumbull's taken two. We've got four test hat-tricks altogether by Australians. Shane Warne, the last one. And over on the, in the visitors' room, there was one taken by an Englishman. And with five test hat-tricks, that's the most of any test-playing venue. Then on the right-hand side, we have honour boards for the test captains. So if you captain Australia at the MCG in a test, your name goes up there. And we've got a board for both men and women. A lot of very famous names up there. And to save you trying to count, Matt, um, no price for guessing this one. Sir Donald Bradman, with nine test centuries, has the most at the MCG. I'm just noticing a sad indictment on today's cricket is that both Steve Smith and uh, Tim Payne are up there on the Australian captain board with uh, uh, no end date after their names. It's, uh, that chapter's still yet to be written. Well, that's right. When no one's been prepared to put an end date to, uh, to Steve Smith or Tim Payne. Uh, and it's quite interesting, uh, speaking of uh, Steve Smith, if you look at the last two names on the Test Century list, it's Warner and Smith. We just wandered past here, the uh, bit of a dining room, and it looks like a staff dining in there at the moment, but you just pointed out to me, James, the sign on there that says Team and Umpire Dining. Tell me about that. Yeah, the sign on this pillar, Team and Umpire Dining, that's for the cricket season. Uh, so for lunch and uh, tea breaks during a test match, we have both teams and the umpires all in there together, all very nice and friendly. It's just extraordinary. It's a it's a basic cafeteria. I never the, the hallowed idea of the the lunch break during a test match and the Boxing Day test, and they're just here at uh, at tables just in a just in a room next to the change rooms. It's great. Yeah, absolutely. It's not like they get up to the long room for their cucumber sandwiches or anything like that. They're all in here. Uh, they do, however, sit at separate tables. <laughs> the thing that's striking me, James, as we tour these magnificent halls of the MCG, is how many unexpected little things we find that you, you just would not anticipate would be at a sporting ground. And this is probably a perfect example. There's a, there's a case in the wall full of ceramic figurines and, and plates and cups and dishes. What, what, what am I looking at here? What you're looking at here is part of the Tony Bear collection. Tony Bear was an extremely eccentric Englishman, um, pardon me, with a, a passion for cricket and a bigger passion for uh, 
items relating to cricket, mainly ceramics, but he also collected glassware, silverware, bronzes, uh, prints, paintings, photographs. Uh, he had an enormous collection and uh, he lived in London. It was all in his London flat. He could barely move in his flat and he donated it to the Melbourne Cricket Club. And what you see here in this cabinet is just a small part of uh, the ceramic collection. The ceramic collection alone is over 600 pieces. Uh, they're magnificent pieces. Some of them go back well over 100 years. Uh, there's Royal Dalton, Royal Worcester, Royal Staffordshire, uh, just to name a few. Of, you know, All the English uh, major pottery makers are represented, uh, all with uh, cricket motifs on them, whether it's actual players. You can see WG Grace there, uh, or it might have bats, balls, um, Marlebone Cricket Club is represented up the top. Some of their uh, bowl, uh, jugs and sugar bowls. Just extraordinary. I'm seeing a, a tankard which looks like it's got Don Bradman's face uh, on it. And as you say, 150th anniversary of the, the British MCC, the Marlebone Cricket Club from 1937. Really quite extraordinary. It must be it must be wonderful to work in a place like this where you can walk around and just, just see these these little links with the history of the place. Oh, absolutely. If you're uh, you know, interested in history and sport, as I am, uh, just can't get any better. Uh, and at the moment, we have more of this Tony Bear collection on display uh, than we ever have, ever have had. As well as this cabinet here, there's another one at the other end of uh, the Frank Gray Smith Bar. And of course, there's a lot in the uh, National Sports Museum and in the Melbourne Cricket Club Museum. Uh, Matt, on the wall here, we've got the most photographed object we have on tour. It's a very famous photograph. Uh, Sir Donald Bradman and Sachin Tendulkar taken at Bradman's home in Adelaide uh, on the occasion of his 90th birthday way back in 1998 it's signed by both of them and they only signed four copies uh, Sachin was invited there uh, Bradman saw in Sachin uh, the same style as he thought he played with he thought Sachin was the closest uh, to himself uh, Shane Warne got invited to the party as well and there are some photos with Shane in but the two batting maestros, uh, this is definitely the best photograph. You do get a lot of um, visitors that come to the MCG from the subcontinent because, of course, as we know, the cricket is uh, more than a sport there. It's a religion. Uh, this must be a bit of a prized uh, item for, uh, for videos, visitors from the subcontinent. Absolutely. And because this photo was uh, on the front page of most uh, newspapers in the uh, cricket-loving world, uh, they all know that it's here before they even get to the MCG. And the minute you start a tour, they're all asking, when do we see the Bradman Tendulkar photograph? And it's a fair way into the tour, so we have to endure their questions until they get to see it. But they absolutely love it. They'll have their photograph taken with it and of it, and then all of them together, and the, uh, they can spend uh, you know, 15, 20 minutes here photographing it. It is a great photo. A great link with sporting history. We're standing in front of what appears to be a library. Again, not an expected part of a, a sporting ground. What's the story of the uh, MCG library? Uh, the MCC library is probably the best sporting library in the world. has a fantastic collection dating back to 1873. Uh, it's not just Australian rules football and cricket. It is all sports, and I do mean all. We even have a book in here uh, on Harry Potter's sport, Quidditch. Uh, it's not a lending library. It's just a reference library, so you have to come here to use the collection. Uh, let's go in and have a look. In the glass on our left here is our rare book collection. Uh, and one of the highlights there is French-English Dictionary just over here. It's this uh, book here. It's a little grubby, but it's allowed to be grubby because it's well over 400 years old. That was printed in 1611. 
And uh, while we have a French-English dictionary in the collection, it's because of an entry in it, Crosse, C-R-O-S-S-E, which is French, which means a bishop's staff, but also a cricket staff, which they describe as the crooked staff wherewith boys play at cricket. And that's the earliest mention that we know of of the word cricket in print. Just extraordinary. Do you have any other uh, favourites in the collection? Uh, There's a book over here called Men in White, which is uh, the largest book we have in the collection. I can barely lift that. And it's quite remarkable because uh, that's about New Zealand cricket. You think it would be about men in black to be a book of that size. Uh, their rugby union, uh, the legendary All Blacks, of course, having a, a magnificent history, not so much their cricket team. On this side, we have our wisdom collection. We have two complete sets of wisdom. Uh, wisdom is the cricketer's almanac, lists all first class uh, matches, dates back to 1864. And when we're talking wisdom, uh, the very rare ones are the thin volumes produced during the First World War when not much uh, sport was being played, obviously. And 1916 in particular uh, is an important one because it contains obituaries uh, to W.G. Grace and Victor Trumper. So very important wisdom. Uh, Even rarer than the wisdoms, and I should mention before I go on that the wisdoms are leather-bound in the club colours. But these little books over here are the Lily Whites, um, which predate wisdom. Wisdom from 1864, the Lily Whites date from 1849. Same sort of format, a cricket almanac. James, we're sitting in the library, the MCC library, as you mentioned, really a lovely spot with a view out over Melbourne. I should ask, is this who is this library open to? Uh, the library is open to members, both on match days and during the week, uh, but it's also open to the public by appointment. Uh, we get a lot of authors, researchers all coming here to use the collection. You were mentioning before that you grew up as a kid coming to the MCG and you've been a member for a long time. How does it feel to, to work, to volunteer and to to lead people around this this church of sport in Melbourne? Well, if you have an interest in sport, and I also have an interest in history, it's just the most magnificent place uh, to, to show people around. I just love uh, showing people the MCG and talking about its history and what's happened here over the years. Uh, it, it, it doesn't feel like, um, you know, work at all. Uh, it's just a joy to come along here. And I'm here three, dif- three days a week doing different things as well as the tours that I do. Um, I work here in the library. I do a lot of research, write articles for uh, the Yorker magazine, which we produce three times a year. Uh, And I also volunteer in the National Sports Museum, showing people uh, a great collection of uh, um, memorabilia and artefacts and film and everything else relating to Australia's great sportsmen and women. What's your favourite part of the ground? Probably the members' uh, long room. Uh, There's a sense of history there. Uh, there's a lot of bats and balls from many different test matches over the years. It's a great place to, to watch the game from. That would probably be my favourite part, I think. Well, James, thank you so much for your time. It's been absolutely brilliant to walk around and see this. And I encourage everyone to do most of the sites that we've seen on this tour. You can do just on the public tour. So I'd encourage everyone to come down and check it out. And, of course, come and see a sporting match here. It absolutely is a fabulous, fabulous place. James, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Matt. It's been a pleasure. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.